Welcome to the Commons Cast. We're glad to have you here. We hope you find something meaningful in our teaching this week. Head to commons.church for more information. Well, good morning, friends. And while you're grabbing your coffee or tea and finding a seat, I'll say a few words about myself because I'm not here as often as I would like to be. Well, my name is Yelena, and I'm part of our uh, pastoral team here at Commons, and it's always a joy for me to be joining you here in Englewood. What I do during the week usually revolves around helping our community build meaningful connections and invest in relationships. I work with our groups, help people organize dinners and other community events, and I also support our volunteers who work with our local partners, Numa, Mustard Seed, and In From the Cold. I'd still consider myself a new Calgarian, but it is definitely growing on me and it's starting to feel like home here, especially after I discovered that a lot of vegetables and berries that I grew up with in Central Asia grow here too. Like sorrel, kohlrabi, gooseberries, sour cherries. How cool is that? I was just so happy. <laughs> um, and also, it's been a year since I joined this team and became part of this community. And let me tell you, I absolutely love it. You are a gift to me and my husband. Well, over the last six weeks, we've been living in the book of Psalms, learning different tools for engaging with biblical poetry. And today we'll be looking at Psalm 65. A couple of weeks ago, Kevin Hill, who's probably here somewhere, he asked me, we were chatting about uh, preaching and things like that, and he asked me, what kind of psalm is yours? And I told him, honestly, I'm not sure. Mm, it's a praise psalm, and a prayer, and maybe a hymn, and there's a bit of confession in it, and a whole bunch of creation imagery, and thanksgiving for good harvest, so not sure. But it turns out that a lot of biblical scholars have also struggled with the precise identification of the psalm's genre. And the consensus today is that originally, there were two independent poems which were put together at a later point. So basically, it is a hymn and a prayer, or a prayer that turns into a hymn, depending on what tense you'd like to read the verbs in the second half. So, the fascinating thing for me about this psalm, though, is how the two parts that are at first glance totally disconnected actually belong together and tell one story, and how this merging creates a one beautiful vision of the ever-expanding grace. And I will try my best to convince you of that as we work through the psalm together today. So today we will be talking about imagination and metaphors, expanding vision, God of power, and what it means to inhabit a place. Well, join me in prayer and we'll dive in. God of love, as you hold us and you hold this world close to your heart, as you watch over those who find themselves on the margins, as you draw close to those who feel lost and who are hurting, would your truth and grace find way to all of us? And as we sift through these words of ancient poets who held on to your goodness even when life was hard and believed that your beauty would fill the earth, 
may we find comfort and hope in them and see how across time and space our longings and our dreams are so much like theirs. Be with us today, Lord. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. So, speaking of vegetables and kohlrabi, <laughs> Northrop Fry, a Canadian literary theorist, says that there is always something vegetable about the imagination, something sharply limited in range, meaning that imagination is always rooted and grows from a very specific experience of people and place. He believes that cultures, thought forms, metaphors are always local and that this connection to place and time is reflected in the literature human beings create. And this is a fascinating idea. Look, here, like this room, this place, this city, the river that flows through it, this country is all part of you. And think about all the ways that you've been shaped by place and all the places you take for granted that have contributed to how you see the world. The landscapes, the foods, the people, your local coffee shops, your morning commute, or the park where you enjoy walking. And this organic nature of human imagination is important to remember, especially when reading such an ancient collection of poetry as the Book of Psalms. And the poets, songwriters, and editors of this book inhabited a particular place at a particular time. And what we find today in the language and structure of biblical poetry reflects the imagination of the Hebrew people and how the ancient Near Eastern cultures saw the world. And that imagination, of course, is not immediately accessible because it is communicated through certain metaphors that sound really strange to our ear today. And the poetry we find in the Bible, and particularly in the Psalms, distills and reworks a lot of imagery from the first few chapters of the book of Genesis. The poets just love drawing on the wealth of metaphors found in the creation narrative because they want to help their community see how that their foundational story, what they believe true about the world, has shaped their life today and how it can help them to envision the future. And if we can recognize some of those images and what they point to as we read through the Bible and particularly poetry, um, yeah, it will cover about 30% of our scriptures. So, in Psalm 65, we find two major metaphors that draw on the creation account. World as a temple and world as a garden. An Old Testament scholar and one of my former profs at Regent, Ian Proven, writes, Temples in the ancient Near East were designed primarily as residences for the gods rather than as places of worship. They were built on sacred spaces, usually upon a stream of flowing water, and their ordered arrangement and decoration mirrored the order and the fertility of the whole cosmos. So what we are reading in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 is the story of how the Hebrew people imagine creation, but also it is a story describing the building of a cosmic temple, how God brings order to the formless non-being, tames the chaotic waters, and creates an ordered universe where the earth is fruitful, 
whether it's a garden with a river flowing out of it as the source of life for the whole land, and how finally, when everything is ready, human beings are being given this temple garden to live in, to enjoy, and to care for. And today we tend to think about God conceptually. God is an idea, or God is a force, or an invisible principle behind all existing things. But for ancient people, God was almost human-like. God had a house where God lived. God had a garden where God created. So as we work through the psalm today, keep this temple and garden metaphors in mind and see how the poet uses them to tell a story. Okay, finally, let's get to the psalm. Psalm 65, a psalm of David, a song. And the word psalm actually means song. And the word used for song here usually refers to something sung in a chorus. And most likely what we have here is a liturgical composition that was meant to be sung by a group of people in the temple. So imagine the temple, imagine choir. And this is what this choir sings. Praise awaits you, O God, in Zion. To you our vows will be fulfilled. You who answer prayer, to you all people will come. When we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. Blessed are those you choose and bring near to live in your courts, who are filled with the good things of your house, of your holy temple. And right away, the poet takes us to this Jerusalem temple, and we hear about people living a good life in the courts, in the house, and at the very heart of where God is. But what's really interesting here in that first verse, that praise awaits you, O God, in Zion, literally reads as, to you, silence is praise, O God, in Zion. So now we have a song meant to be sung by a choir in the context of traditional, beautiful, loud worship in a temple. But the very first words of the song renounce the idea of singing. And it's not surprising how some manuscripts and translators try to smooth it over and turn this idea of silence as praise into praise that is forthcoming. But I love it, I really love it, how in the middle of this collection of songs of praise, we have a song that claims that silence is praise too. And how it challenges and expands our imagination of worship. You see, in the world of the ancient Near East, the deities that lived in the temples, through their images, they hungered for worship. And they created humans to work for them and praise them and meet all their needs. But for a Hebrew worshiper standing in the temple, hearing that silence is praise to God, it would signal a very different kind of relationship that this God wants to have with people made in God's image. And I think it's also a beautiful reminder for us that being real with where we are in our face, even if sometimes it looks like silence, is actually true praise. And I'm sure we've all had this experience when there's not much left in us and we don't feel like we can be fully present to God. 
in the same way as we sometimes struggle to be present to people in our lives, even to those we really love. And here, this poet reflects to us how God sees us in those moments and says, do not try to be who you cannot be at the moment. God does not need it. You are loved. And maybe at this particular juncture in your life, you feel spent and you have no words left for prayer and all the affirmations and songs of God's goodness just sound hollow. And maybe the maximum you can do is to show up to church and your home group maybe and then just sleep away right after. Or maybe something happened and you've been shaken up to the point that you are not even sure how to do this you and God thing anymore. Well, hear this, God honors your silence and your integrity is honoring to God. And the divine is never far from your need to just be. So be quiet, be still, bring a silence and let it be your worship. And then for the psalmist here, worship is not tied up to a location, but to the God who hears prayer. And the poet says, all people will come to you. And then metaphorically knocks down the walls and removes the gates and lets everyone searching for God in. And the worshipers are reminded that not only their worship, but their temple too is much larger than they think. It is a symbol and it is a sacrament of inclusion. And that from the very beginning, the good life did not belong to a particular ethnic group or those who would fit specific requirements. It was meant to be for every human being created in the image of their God and for all living creatures too. Because all people here actually is all flesh in Hebrew. It's the same word used in the flood story for Noah and his whole family and all the animals that they gathered up and put in the ark to save from the chaotic waters. Well, now, sin does not get a lot of attention in the sum because its primary focus is on experience of wholeness and flourishing found in the temple garden. But I find it interesting how the poet talks about sin and forgiveness and expands on what would have been a common understanding of both. So when we were overwhelmed by sins, you forgave our transgressions. It can also be read as when words of iniquity overpower us, our transgressions you forgive. In the Hebrew text, the word dabar in plural is placed before iniquity or just <clears throat> and, sorry, before iniquity, and it can mean words, things, matters, or deeds. And some translations go for deeds of iniquity or just omit that word altogether, while others believe that it should be retained. So Beth Tanner, a scholar who specializes in Hebrew poetry, argues that this psalm in particular has this interplay of hearing and speaking. People listen, people speak their vows, God listens, God speaks forgiveness, and therefore the words of iniquity is a better translation. And I would also add that it also captures a human experience of sin better. Sorry, a spider. 
<laughs> okay. Words of iniquity captures our human experience of sin better. Because, look, whenever we move away from what's best for us, either intentionally or not, when trust gets broken, when we make choices that hurt others, or when other people hurt us, when we push against what's true and good and beautiful, even when we know that we need it, or when we're complacent and turn away while knowing that we could do something about a situation. It's not our actions that overwhelm us, and usually not the consequences. We just live with them after. It's what we come to tell ourselves about ourselves in the process. The old scripts we fall into when something is triggered, or the hurtful messages we carry around for years, or the shame that we allow to pile up and to eventually convince us that we are no good, or that we do not deserve to be loved. And as time goes by, these words we tell ourselves create the worlds we then start to inhabit. And that disempowers us and pulls us even further away from healing. And the poet says here, you do not have to live out of that story. Only in two other instances in the book of Psalms, divine forgiveness is described using the same verb, kafar, which means to atone for sin, or to wash the guilt away without any accompanying ritual from the guilty one. And kafar happens when God becomes the one who takes all the guilt in, and the guilty one gets a fresh start. The traditional temple practice required some kind of sacrifice for the guilt to be removed so that this divine human connection and relationship could be restored. But here we see people who come into God's presence without a song, without a sacrifice, and even without a proper prayer of confession. The only thing they do is whisper, these burdens have become too much for us to carry. And then they throw themselves on God's grace. And God says, give me your load. I will give you rest. All right. We've looked at different ways the psalm expands the imagination of worship how the Jerusalem temple is a symbol of God's world that includes all creation, and how the story of sin gets overwritten by grace. And so far, we stayed in the first half of this poem, and this first half zooms in on everything to do with restoration of people as God's image bearers. But now let's transition to the second half, which zooms out to give us a picture of what this restored harmony looks like for the whole creation. You answer us with awesome and righteous deeds, God our Savior, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the Father's seas. 
And here again, we see how biblical poetry creates meaning by using parallel constructions. When two halves or three parts of the line complete each other to emphasize a point. We're going to see a lot of it in this section. So here, the parallel lines, all the ends of the earth and of the father's seas give us an idea of how geographically vast and overarching God's presence is. Who formed the mountains by your power, having armed yourself with strength? Who stilled the roaring of the seas, the roaring of the waves, and the turmoil of the nations? The image of the divine warrior conquering the chaotic waters was quite common in the ancient Near Eastern cosmogony. Look, for the people whose imagination was rooted in their experience of life in a semi-desert, a stormy sea with its raging waves was the epitome of instability and danger. Sea was the place where the sea gods lived and went to battle to overthrow harmony and to push the universe into chaos and destruction. So here, the metaphor of God stealing the roaring seas communicates that creation is safe and under control. It is not life and death situation anymore. It's only about life. And the comparison of the riding nations with the roaring waves completes this description of chaos. The instigators of conflict who seek power over others also push against creation and do not want it to be a safe place where everyone can thrive. And if you think of it, today we are not really scared of water as something that will put our life in danger or will interfere with, with how we do life in society. But every evening when I tell Google to play the news, what I hear often feels like a sea storm. And I like listening to several different broadcasters and news podcasts on the same day just to get a bit of a different perspective on what's going on. And I don't know if you can relate to that or maybe it's just me but a lot of subtle and not so subtle messages from different places around the world, and even here, seem to revolve around power and fear. Who wants power? Who has power? How power gets used or misused, and what happens when someone tries to stand up to it? And then the messages of fear are usually closely associated with those of power or even driven by them. Who should we be afraid of? Who's the enemy today? How can we resist the threat those people pose to our version of a good, safe world? And in that way, we are not that different from the people who composed these ancient texts and who wanted to have a warrior God on their side that can smash all those godless nations and make sure no one gets access to our blessings. And I mean, these ancient texts we open every Sunday are in many ways a case study of human experience of power and fear. And the story of Jesus in the Gospels really turns these notions upside down. But even here in this psalm, there is a hint that things do not have to be that way. And that divine power is not about who shouldn't be let in, but rather who is still on the outside. 
The Hebrew word used here for nations is not goyim, that was used to emphasize the otherness of non-Israelite people groups. It's le'umim, which has a more inclusive connotation of diverse ethnic groups under a larger um, geopolitical nation umbrella. And so the idea here is not about God squashing the differences. It's about the vision of the world where people are not othered based on their differences. God's original intention for creating the world and Jesus is emptying himself of divine power to renew all creation, both point to the same thing. Creation is meant to be a good, safe place where everyone can thrive. And this is where the poet takes us out of the temple into the garden, or maybe even their family farm, and says, see this land, see all its abundance, all of this are signs that God is with us. You care for the land and water it. You enrich it abundantly. And we are not hearing that cosmic language of battle and laying the foundations of the world anymore. We're looking at a small piece of land that people work to grow some food in an arid climate where the harvest entirely depends on rainfall. The streams of God are filled with water to provide the people with grain, for so you have ordained it. And this is your cue to imagine a cosmic temple built upon a stream of water that flows through the garden and gives life to all creation. You drench its furrows and level its ridges. You soften it with showers and bless its crops. And look, such a transformation from the raging seas and waves that destruct to quiet, life-giving rains and springs. You crown the year with your bounty, and your cards overflow with abundance. The grasslands of the wilderness overflow. The hills are clothed with gladness. The meadows are covered with flocks, and the valleys are mantled with grain. They shout for joy and sing. When talking about reading poetry in the scriptures, the biblical scholar Robert Alter points out an important feature of biblical Hebrew that we all should be aware of. It does not use a lot of abstractions. The spiritual reality is always connected and expressed in the physical experience, and the divine goals and purposes are always implemented in social and political realms. So this Hebrew poets were peasants. They lived off the land. And it could be that this half of the psalm was a prayer for rain during a particularly dry season. And then it became a thanksgiving hymn to be used during the fall harvest fest. And later it was merged with the first half of the poem to make a whole new one. The one that draws on the imagination of the creation story. And the one that begins with personal experience of restoration and then points to embodied neighborliness and then ends with a worship service in a local field. Well, I know we're all in Alberta, but I bet only a handful of people in this room actually grow grain and raise cattle. And yet, 
we all live off this land and some other magical land that grows avocados. <laughs> and while there's not much room left to explore what it means for us to care for this land as divine image bearers, I want to at least point us in that direction. In her book, Why Are We Here?, a Canadian writer and theologian, Mary Jo Letty, reflects on what it means for us today to live together in the land we call Canada. And she explores the imagination that the indigenous people had for this land, how the first and subsequent generations of settlers saw it, and then she looks at it through the eyes of newcomers and refugee children she works with in Toronto. And her guiding question, why are we here, gets answered differently at different points in our history. To survive, to own, to claim, to consume, to mine, to manage, and to belong. But what really resonated with me in her book is this metaphor of caring as inhabiting. And for Mary Jo, inhabiting a place is about two things. First is cultivating gratitude for this vast and beautiful gift of space we all hold in common. And second, it's about taking on the weight of where we live and becoming responsible for it. And this will look different for all of us here. But maybe this week you can be intentionally mindful of where you spend your time and what you see around. What is it about living in your neighborhood that gives you joy? And in what small ways you shape it to be what it is? Maybe it's a cup of coffee you get on a Saturday at your local coffee shop. Or perhaps you're that kind person who lifts an October line bike or a scooter on the sidewalk. Or when you eat, look at the cucumbers and tomatoes on your plate and think how in a very, very tangible way, you are connected to the farmers and the greenhouses around Calgary that produce them, and how the very soil of this land, the very soil of it, is now becoming part of you. And I will leave you with Mary Jo Lady's words. She says, this much is still possible. If we take on consciously and together active care for this particular place on earth, then we will discover what holds the immense diversity of this country together. We hold a street in common, a neighborhood, a city, a village, a park, a vastness. We are not owners, but inhabitants of this place. We are inhabitants. Why are you here? Here I am, and here we are. So as you head into this week, go with the assurance the divine holds you in your silence. But the place where you find yourself planted is a gift of a good God. And may you inhabit it well. Let's pray. Oh God, creator of mountains and green meadows, bubbling springs and stormy seas, always too big to be contained in and described, 
our human language, but never too big to pay attention to the desires of our hearts and the fears that keep us hiding. Oh Jesus, the hope of the world in whom the fullness of God dwells, ground us in the place we inhabit. Show us what it means to live a life of care in this community, in this city, and this country. And Holy Spirit, the challenger of the truths we choose to believe, may we listen to your voice and know what is good and true and beautiful for us and for this land. Breathe in us the joy of being alive in this place and at this time. Watch over us and keep us from all harm. Amen.